to our monthly national welcome to our monthly national peace builder call with a very special guest tonight Marianne Williamson who we all know and love for the brave and daring work she's always done and continues to do I'm thrilled to have her on the call tonight uh, tonight's call is being recorded and we all we're also streaming on Facebook live we're going to put some links in the chat and if you want to click on a link it'll be in your browser for you to review when the call is over. Our mission at the Peace Alliance is to empower civic action toward a culture of peace. The Peace Alliance is guided by the five cornerstones of peace, community peace building, humanizing justice systems, fostering international peace, practicing peace in schools, and cultivating personal peace. The five cornerstones are endorsed in the blueprint for peace and by clicking on the link in the chat, it will allow you to sign the Blueprint for Peace, and that will notify your state and federal officials that you support policy priorities around peace building and violence reduction, and you want those priorities reflected in legislation. The five cornerstones of peace and the Blueprint for Peace support the vision and legislation for a U.S. Department of Peace Building, and Marianne will share with us more about the history of this legislation. And Matthew Albrock is going to introduce Marianne tonight. Uh, Matthew is an author and activist who has worked with the Peace Alliance since its founding in 2004 in various roles, including managing director, executive director, and now board member. So thank you, Matthew, and it's over to you. Thanks. I'm so excited to introduce Marianne. So before I share the main highlights of Marianne's work and career uh, and introduction for the event tonight, let me first share for those of you that might be newer to our work and don't know that much about the Peace Alliance history, uh, that Marianne is the reason this organization exists. Her work founding the Peace Alliance and the Department of Peace campaign even well before that uh, has led to so many inspiring accomplishments over these last two decades. In particular, it's motivated many thousands of people's hands-on engagement and advocacy on behalf of proactive root cause focused peace building. And there are so many of us, uh, myself included, who owe much of our activism and social and political philosophy uh, to her guidance and inspiration. And I can safely say that all of us at the Peace Alliance are continually grateful for all that you do, Marianne, and are so proud of our heritage with you uh, and what you represent out in the world through all of your work. Uh, it continues to be an inspiration and there aren't really enough words to express our deep thanks for everything you do now in the world and everything you've done for this organization and for the cause of peace. So, oops, thank you for that. Thank you, thank you. Uh, and beyond the Peace Alliance, Marianne has, of course, been up to so much incredible work. Uh, for over three decades, she's been a leader in spiritual and religiously progressive circles. She's the author of 14 books, four of which have been number one New York Times bestsellers. Uh, and Marianne also founded the nonprofit organization called Project Angel Food, which has delivered over 14 million meals to ill and dying homebound patients since 1989. It was created to help people suffering from the ravages of HIV and AIDS. Uh, she also, of course, ran for the Democratic nomination for president in 2020, which many of us were excited to watch. 
And then most recently, she launched her Transform uh, Substack, which is at mariannewilliamson.substack.com, which is a really great forum for her writing, interviews uh, with really amazing thought leaders and so much more. And I'd highly suggest you all check that out. I love seeing it show up in my email and uh, social media feeds. There's always something really important and fascinating to read and discover. You can find that also on her website at marianne.com. And maybe we'll stick it, somebody maybe can stick it in the, the uh, links too. And so, and then finally, before I zip it and turn it over to you, Marion, I just want to say that personally, you've been such a dear friend and mentor to me for over 25 years now. And it's such an honor for me and many others here to get to work alongside you for so many years crafting this work for peace. Uh, we're just really excited for this <clears throat> conversation and turn it over to you. Well, thank you. Thank you so much, everyone. It's an honor to be here. And um, everything that uh, Matthew said about me is ditto in spades. Uh, it's nice to be here tonight with some people who I've known for years. As Matthew said, many of us have been in this work uh, literally for decades. Uh, it was Dennis Kucinich, then Congressman Dennis Kucinich, who I first heard uh, talking about uh, Department of Peace. Um, the conversation had actually predated that as well, but it was hearing Dennis Kucinich talk about it that first aroused my interest. And then as uh, Matthew said, was Matthew and I became uh, very interested in doing whatever we could to promote a citizen's lobby uh, to support the concept of a Department of Peace. Beyond that, memory lane doesn't really have much, isn't of much interest uh, to me. What's important, of course, is the present. Uh, the past is important for what it's taught us, uh, for what it enables us to understand. But I think that all of us would agree that the concept of the Department of Peace has never uh, been more relevant than it is right now. Um, not only in terms of my work with the Peace Alliance, but also with other work that I've done, including running for president, I saw that um, people out there, voters, um, understand the concept and find it reasonable. But what I wanna to talk to you about tonight is the difference between the reasonableness, the intelligence, the nobility and the dignity of the American people regarding this subject and actually regarding many others as well, but that's for another night, versus the institutional resistance to such a concept as this and why. Um, first of all, a lot of people I find don't even really know that there is such a thing as peace building. A lot of people think it's just this concept, oh, you build peace. But it's important that we remember, that we recognize, remember, and learn to articulate when we ourselves are talking about it, that it's a very specific skill set. There are four factors which statistically are proven when present to increase the incidence of peace and to decrease the incidence of violence. Number one, expanded economic opportunities for women. Number two, expanded educational opportunities for children. Number three, the reduction of violence against women. And number four, the eradication of unnecessary human despair. Whether you're talking about a corner of an American city or you're talking about some other corner of the world, when those factors are present, statistically, greater incidence of peace and a lower incidence of violence. You'll notice, however, 
that none of those factors, although they create greater peace, none of those factors create corporate profits. Those are the elements of waging peace. The elements of waging war, however, create huge corporate profits, which means by definition that an effort to wage peace, which decreases the incidence of violence, therefore decreases the so-called reasons for all of our necessary waging of war are inherently at odds with one another. Now, I remember uh, going to a doctor decades ago who talked to me about um, something I was dealing with physically. And he talked about the things that we were going to do to boost my immune system. And it was the first time anybody had explained to me in such clear uh, terms that my body didn't really want to be sick and that my body knew how to get rid of sickness if my immune system was healthy. And those were the years during which the entire conversation about what was for a while complementary medicine, uh, then integrative medicine, uh, became so, so much a part of mainstream consciousness that you didn't just wait until you got sick and then use allopathic remedies to suppress or eradicate symptoms but rather you took responsibility for proactively creating health. You did this through your diet, you did this through your exercise, and you also did this through lifestyle, including spiritual choices. That is where we have to get to in terms of war and peace. If we just wait for conflict to happen and then apply allopathic remedies of brute force, whether it has to do with more police, more prisons, or more war to suppress or eradicate those symptoms, then we will continue to go in the same direction that you go too often when you only apply allopathic remedy to disease. And that is that your symptoms simply morph into other symptoms. We must apply the same issue of prevention we must apply the same whole person techniques of body, mind, and spirit to not only the eradication and the prevention of, of, of the disease of violence, but also to its amelioration and to its eradication if and when it occurs. We have an $813 billion um, uh, defense budget today, and that is billions more than it was when we were first talking about the establishment of the Department of Peace. But I'd like to talk to you for a moment about that compared to the Department of State. A lot of people have asked, by the way, well, why do we need a Department of Peace if we already have a Department of State? Well, two things are very important there. First of all, the Department of State only deals with foreign issues, whereas the concept of a Department of Peace deals with um, deals with uh, domestic issues as well as, as, as foreign policy. Remember, as I was saying a few minutes ago, peace building techniques are the same, whether you're talking about a corner of a US city or another corner of the world. We have an $813 billion uh, defense budget and we have something like a $44 billion um, State Department budget. So $813 billion that goes basically to the defense industry, the proverbial military industrial complex that uh, the Republican president, uh, Dwight Eisenhower, who was also the Supreme Ally commander during World War II, warned us about. And it's important to remember what he exactly was saying. At the beginning of World War II, we didn't have a standing army. We, we were attacked by the Japanese at Pearl Harbor. We didn't even have a standing army. We had to put one 
in place, put one together. By the end of World War II, no intelligent person was suggesting that we didn't need to have a standing army. However, Eisenhower himself, obviously no slouch, given that he himself was the Supreme Allied Commander during World War II, recognized the danger inherent in the partnership between congressional power, legislative power, executive power, and corporations. And that is what he was warning us about in the military industrial complex speech, his farewell address, uh, when he was about to hand over the presidency to JFK. And I think anyone would agree that pretty much Eisenhower's worst, worst fears have in fact come true. So we have this $813 billion um, def uh, defense budget, and we have a State Department budget, once again, uh, issues of, of diplomacy and so forth uh, at 44 billion. Marianne, you went to mute. Oh, what about now? Am yeah, I good. muted now? Perfect. Perfect. Okay. Uh, when, what was the last thing you heard me say? It was say? just for five seconds. Okay, okay. So within the State Department, you have the USAID, and that has to do with simply humanitarian uh, humanitarian aid, and that is something like less than a billion dollars. I think a lot of people think that the United States gives so much money um, compared to other countries in humanitarian aid, but the truth of the matter is compared to other advanced democracies, we give very, very little uh, um uh, of our money to um, uh, humanitarian aid. The reason this is important, of course, is because when you're talking about humanitarian aid, you're talking about those factors in, of peace building, um, whether it has to do with uh, educating children, uh, um, giving economic opportunities to women and, um, and ameliorating unnecessary human suffering. We should not see such things as charity. We should see such things as peace building factors. We should see such things as preventative measures. We should recognize, for instance, that large groups of desperate people are a national security risk. I, I'm reading, it's interesting, right now I'm reading a biography of Franklin and Eleanor Roosevelt. And so I was just reading the part about World War I and um, uh, President Woodrow Wilson's desire for a League of Nations after World War I. After that war, which was considered the greatest war, everybody said nothing like it would ever happen again, uh, completely unnecessary tragedy as, as it's seen in retrospect. When the, the nations who fought uh, against the Germans in World War I made reparations after a World War I, reparations for the Germans were basically Deutschmark till we tell you to stop. And Woodrow Wilson uh, argued uh, passionately against this, he was overruled. And, and historians are now clear that the desperation that was the economic despair, as well as the humiliation that was then present after World War I uh, among the German people formed a kind of petri dish out of which the emergence of Hitler uh, was much more probable and became much more possible. We, of course, then acted very, very differently at the end of World War II uh, with the Marshall Plan and so forth. We knew the, the, the last thing we needed to do uh, was to have on our hands a defeated and humiliated and desperate Germany and or Japan. We needed to them to get back on their feet to become um, uh, members of the of, of, of the family of nations as an as, as a preventative measure so that something like that would be uh, much less likely to occur. Um, I think that when uh, the story is told and we have a um, post-Ukraine 
conversation, we will be uh, those those who are interested in America's looking uh, in the mirror will take a, a look at um, some of American foreign policy over the last few decades uh, and how it was a contributive, uh, contributive factor in, in what is happening now. At the end of the war, and this horror in Ukraine will end at some point, and then there's going to be a very, very big conversation and the Peace Alliance and all those interested in the Department of Peace uh, campaign should be very much involved in that conversation. Many people will use what has happened, and, and I want to point out something we all know, but it's almost so difficult when you even allow yourself to take it in, and that is that the entire post-World War II liberal order is now over. It has been literally shot to pieces. What's going to happen at the end of this war? Some people will see it, and some people already do see it as um, an argument for even greater uh, military uh, buildup, uh, including nuclear. Now, I'd like to talk to you about nuclear here for a moment. The nuclear, the whole idea of um, when we were growing up and what we've been told for decades was that our nuclear posture was based on a policy of mutually assured destruction, right? That nobody uh, would drop a, a nuclear bomb because they would know that if they did that, they would have a nuclear bomb dropped on them, right? Well, I think that we can now recognize that that only exists, that's only true if you're dealing with a rational actor. And we're dealing with someone now who appears not to be. When you think of the fact that there is even a 1%, some people say that, you know, Putin dropping a, a nuclear bomb is maybe 1%, but reasonable people also recognize that even 1% is too high. But I would ask you, the United States has about 7,000 nuclear bombs, and that's how many that we know of. Tell me, would it be any different if there were five than 7,000? How is our having 7,000 nuclear bombs doing anything to keep Vladimir Putin from doing the worst? And I also point out to you that five of the nuclear bombs, the nuclear bombs that exist on the planet today, make uh, the bombs that were dropped on uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki look like pinpricks, the smallest that we have today. And there are insane people, and, and forgive me, but I think insane is actually the appropriate word. People talking about precision nukes, limited nuclear warfare. But what they're talking about is small nukes, like I said, make Hiroshima and Nagasaki look like pinpricks. If five of those dropped on the planet, it would be the end of human civilization as we know it. If 10 or 15 of those dropped on the planet, it would be the end of the species, actually, the life of the species for at least 200 or 300,000 years, if even then uh, the species could begin again on planet Earth. And yet, even with the new, um, uh, during Obama's presidency, uh, there was uh, what he called, he, I, I forget the word, you know, they were just making it, what was the word, not the restoration of our nuclear arsenal, but something like we're just getting it in shape. And of course, it was building more uh, during Trump's presidency. Um, there was a diminishment of American commitment to nonproliferation. And uh, even now under Biden, 
um, they're talking about spending about a trillion dollars over the next 10 years on more nuclear bombs. When it comes to the military industrial complex, unfortunately, the two, uh, the two political parties, major political parties are pretty much in lockstep. Whatever Northrop Grumman wants, whatever Raytheon wants, uh, whatever Boeing wants. Uh, our current Department of Defense, uh, Secretary of Defense uh, is a former uh, board member at Raytheon and Congress itself uh, had traditionally, and I think even in terms of, um, of, of some piece of legislation, uh, declared that the, the Secretary of the Department of Defense should not be a military man. Um, but uh, with Trump, they overrode that. With Biden, they overrode that. Of course, our Secretary of Defense, um, uh, Mr. Um, Lloyd Austin, uh, made a big deal about taking off his general's uniform. He said, I'm a civilian now. But everybody knows uh, what the game is here. Here in Washington, D.C., where I, where I live, it's called the blob. There is a defense establishment here. And of course, it's also to be noted uh, that with the passage of the 18, uh, $813 billion defense uh, budget, they actually talk about, well, we're going to have to see our future strategic uh, issue is China. What are these people talking about? I have a good friend, a girlfriend who was, we were texting today and she said, well, I agree with the buildup in, in, in military uh, because we're gonna have to deal with China over Taiwan. I said, what are you talking about? You think we're gonna go to war with China over Taiwan? This, this is insane talk that people are having today. And it's also interesting to note, I don't know if you saw, um, uh, if you saw Bill Maher just this last Friday, but the first person that he was interviewing was a woman talking about cybersecurity. And with all the money that we're spending on, on defense, an example uh, of, of this, by the way, is the Afghanistan war in which we spent $2.3 trillion, $2 trillion of it went only uh, to uh, the U.S. defense uh, industry. That's particularly important because you might notice, of course, as we all did, that the Taliban lost um, and the Taliban were able to reclaim Afghanistan within 10 days. One of the reasons for that is because we spent so little money and so little effort, by the way, in actually uh, supporting a democratic government in Afghanistan. Also, it should be pointed out that Afghan fighters have been known historically as among the most fierce and successful in the world. What happened here was that the, the, every, uh, the defense establishment would have us so proud of ourselves that we left them so much military equipment. Yeah, we left them American military equipment, which was not um, the kind of military equipment and the kind of army and the kind of warfare uh, that they were so famous uh, uh, for being able to achieve. So all of this is to say nothing could be more important right now than the Peace Alliance. Nothing could be more important right now than a very sophisticated conversation about what it means to wage peace. I don't think it's ever been so relevant to quote John F. Kennedy when he said that uh, humanity will put an end to war or war will put an end to us. Matthew and I are, you know, very aware of how much the establishment loves to uh, peripheralize and minimize um, and almost deride people such as ourselves as though we are naive. But as it's so important, we keep reminding each other what's naive is to think that we will continue on this planet for another hundred years uh, if we keep this suicide march uh, that we are on not only in terms of war, but also of course, in terms of environmental degradation. I think it's 
having an impact definitely uh, on many millions of people around the world, but that includes Americans, the horrors that we are seeing um, uh, unfold before us in the Ukraine. Uh, could you imagine if we had actual photographs like that uh, of what was happening during World War II? We have some, but nothing like the continuous coverage that we have of Ukraine. But also we should remind ourselves that if we had coverage, if the corporate media wanted to show us what happened in Iraq, it would not have looked that different. And when to hear someone like Joe Biden talk about war crimes, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not in any way, um, uh, I, I'm not saying uh, that, uh, uh, I'm not comparing uh, the United States in terms of the cruelty and the brutality that was such an intentional uh, mode of war to what Putin is doing. But if anything is naive, it's to pretend to ourselves that the United States did not commit war crimes. Julian Assange, for instance, is in jail at Bel Belmarsh Prison right now in England because in 2010, he revealed uh, the atrocities, the, um, the war crimes, the murders, the rapes um, uh, that had been committed. Uh, in Afghanistan and Iraq that the United States government then wanted to cover up. It's important for us to recognize that a lot of the covering up of the malfeasance of the US uh, um, war machine is through, a, through the process of classification. I think we all wanna be very aware, if you're in the conversation, these are the kinds of things you kind of need to know. So we have what's called the classification system. The classification system enables the government to classify a document if it can prove that for the information to be revealed would be a risk to or threat to American security. That's reasonable, of course. However, what has happened over the last few years is that the government will just classify anything it finds inconvenient for you to know. And then um, uh, when journalists say, why is that classified? Why is that, why is that information classified? The government says, we can't tell you because it's classified. And Julian Assange, by revealing, um, there's, there's an absolutely hideous uh, video out there called Collateral Murder. What happened, and that was part of what was revealed by WikiLeaks at the time, is that there were these people, many of them were mentally ill, and many of them were actually men trying to get their, their women to the hospital to give birth, got too close to checkpoints and were killed. The U.S. government doesn't want us to know. The U.S. government should, should be revealing these things. Uh, when many of us were young enough, we remember that in Vietnam, there was something called the My Lai Massacre. The My Lai Massacre was when American soldiers massacred a village. We all knew. It was important that we knew. The national shame that we all felt was important. And also it was important to move the country towards the end of the war, because then when Daniel Ellsberg, through the Pentagon Papers, et cetera, began revealing certain things and the country saw what was going on, we were like, what the hell is happening here? And that was the spark that led to the end of the, of, of the Vietnam War. Daniel Ellsberg is now saying that, that what Assange has done is actually more important than what Daniel Ellsberg uh, did with the revelations in the Pentagon Papers. And yet, of course, the US establishment has, um, uh, has turned him in uh, to the idea that he's a traitor. He's no more of a traitor uh, than Daniel Ellsberg was. And of course, Daniel Ellsberg is seen today as a hero. Also interesting to note that Obama, President Obama, was not going after uh, Assange because he knew that to do so, uh, if he did that, he was going to have to go after the New York Times, which had published the material. Um, when uh, Trump, um, Trump administration decided to uh, prosecute and to seek extradition of uh, Julian Assange, 
many of us thought that that uh, President Biden would go back to Obama's position and drop it, but he did not. And as we know, uh, the extradition proceedings are continuing in the case of Julian Assange. What was his sin? He's put it out for all to see that the American war machine is out of control. And if you think the American war machine wants a department of peace, if anything as naive as that. And that's why we have a big job to do everyone. And that's why I know that on my beh uh, behalf of myself, of Matthew, of Kathy Kidd, of Diane Tate and all those past and present who work so hard, uh, Judy Kimmel uh, worked so hard to promote the Department of Peace. Um, I urge you to realize um, this is deadly serious stuff, deadly serious. Anything we can do, uh, there has been such a normalization of a war perspective. There is such a normalization of the war machine. There is such a um, lockstep, uh, both Republican and Democratic party uh, to go along with whatever the Pentagon wants um, that if we do not as a generation stand up and interrupt this pattern and fundamentally interrupt it, knowing that the status quo in this case, as in most cases will not disrupt itself, then I fear for my country and I fear for the world. So I acknowledge all of you for being here. Um, I, I have always felt uh, that the Department of Peace work, um, um, my involvement with the uh, Peace Alliance always meant so much to me for this reason. Uh, I'm so glad to see it continue. I'm so glad to see that uh, people like Kathy and Matthew are still there. Um, uh, Judy, um, so uh, I welcome you, uh, Diane, and I hope that all of you will join with us and continue loudly, passionately. Um, I know many of you, uh, particularly those of you who are women, are probably aware of the original Mother's Day proclamation, which was written by Julia Ward Howe. Uh, and what, what that proclamation was, was after uh, the Civil War, mothers of both Southern soldiers who had been killed in action in the Civil War and mothers of Northern soldiers, Union soldiers who had been killed in action during the Civil War got together and said, let us spend one day a year declaring no more, no more. And I hope Lauren that you will put it in the chat, the link please uh, to the original Mother's Day proclamation. I know I post it every Mother's Day. Some of you probably do as well. Um, isn't it interesting that it's become just a hallmark holiday, that it's become just something where, you know, you take your mother to lunch and you buy her flowers. Uh, it's kind of like the Statue of Liberty, dress her up, but nobody should listen to what she has to say anymore. Um, this is not a time to be quiet. This is the time to speak with all the sophistication, uh, all the um, powers of persuasion and articulation that we have. Um, and if we do, we will create peace or we at the very least will die trying. Thank you so much. Any questions that you have or conversation that you wanna go into? Yeah. Um, I'll be glad to Great. have So if you have a question, if you can uh, go down to the reactions and raise your hand <clears throat> so I can see it on the screen. I see a lot of former state coordinators and volunteers on here and it felt like we were just at one of those conferences from way back when you used to inspire us, Marianne. Thank you. Yes. Felt like old times. So who yeah. has a question? Okay. Do you want me to read from these, Kathy? Uh, sure. I, I there's see one. In the chat? Yeah. Okay. Oh, you want to read to me? What do you want, honey? I'll read to you. Okay. Uh, so can you ask Marianne how we can advocate more effectively with legislators 
in Congress to get the U.S. Department of Peacebuilding bill passed and signed into law? Well, you know, it is, Nancy Pelosi is not gonna change her mind. Um, uh, there is a piece of legislation that is co-signed by Barbara Lee. Uh, at this point, all that's just yada, yada, yada. Uh, it's not going to become, you know, our job is to inconvenience the system. And as I said, when it comes to both Democrats and Republicans, they're in lockstep on this. So what we need to do is to foster the work exactly as the Peace Alliance is seeking to do among citizens. You know, it's just the same as you see with the environmental movement or racial justice or anything else, that people become loud enough. There's not a loud enough voice when it comes to the Department of Peace. There's not a loud enough voice. And this is one of the reasons I ran uh, for president um, to talk about the establishment of the Department of Peace and waging peace. Uh, that was one of the reasons I talked. It was one of the uh, pillars of my campaign. But then once again, also, if you see somebody doing it, support them. I mean, this is this this is a little like you know, um, isn't that niceness to it, uh, which is not um, uh, not going to be strong enough to get the work done. By the way, in talking about a Department of Peace legislation, and you can still actually go to um, uh, the Marianne 2020 uh, issues um, section uh, on my former presidential campaign, and the Department of Peace, the idea there, what we have on there is the idea of a peace academy. Right now we have a military academy. So what happens in a military academy is somebody comes and they are given an education, including a military education, and the way they pay the country back uh, for that education is that then they go and serve in the military. That is exactly what we would do with a peace building academy, is people come, they're educated, including in the areas of peace building, and then they are sent out, whether it has to do with an American city or another part of the world. JFK, of course, started the, um, the Peace Corps, but the Peace Corps was and remains kind of go out and do what you can. Once again, peace building skills are, are very specific, um, and they are... Um, uh, it, 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 is, it is an area of expertise, which can and must be cultivated. I hope that you will look, I know that Lauren is, is posting several things that are important yeah. here um, on my podcast about Afghanistan. Uh, one of the worst aspects of uh, American behavior uh, is that when we do make a mistake, uh, we don't do much more than, oops, we probably shouldn't have done that. There is no real conversation about uh, what happened and why. If there had been with Vietnam, I don't think the American people would have been so easily duped into a repetition of that horror with Iraq. And if after Iraq, there had been anything along that line, Americans might not have been duped so easily into continuing uh, for probably 15 years or more or longer, more than we should have been in Afghanistan, given what we were doing there. Um, my podcast on Afghanistan, you can see the link to that. Also, my um, uh, my interview with Andrew Coburn, uh, his book called Spoils of War. The reason these things are important, as I said before, the more articulate you become about these issues, the better, because then you become an ambassador of the message on your own platforms, in your own conversations. We all have um, uh, congressional races coming up in 2022. Uh, if you look at uh, the endorsee list that I uh, have promoted, it's on something called CandidateSummit.com. Lauren, perhaps you could put that up. One of the things that's um, 
uh, a factor in all of the candidates that I have endorsed is support for a, a decrease in the military budget. So when you ask what can we do, I, I mean, we just gotta make a lot of noise. And a lot of it has to do with breaking through this kind of miasma, this almost like fog, you know, they, it's been called the fog of war. And people who, in my opinion, should know better are continuing to argue for what is clearly an unsurvivable future. Not that they see it that way, but they wouldn't argue for it. But when you're talking about something like war with China, could you stop for a moment and think about what you're saying? You know, part of the problem, um, this is very important that we understand this. Part of the problem with Iraq and Afghanistan is that we squandered our moral authority and we squandered our military credibility. I don't think that Putin would have been so emboldened had he not felt that after Afghanistan and Iraq, what should we be so afraid of? Um, our malfeasance and ultimate spectacular failure in both of those wars, I think has given a lot of fuel to a lot of autocrats around the world. In other words, it's not only criminal, it's stupid. So uh, anybody else have a question? So Marianne, you mentioned Ukraine. What's the reason you think there's so much heartbreak over U Ukraine and not other wars that have happened? What's well, different actually, about this? I, I'm not actually enrolled in that. I, I know a lot of people say that. Uh, I, 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 you know, people say, oh, why don't you care as much about people in Yemen? I do care as much about people in Yemen. I think most people do. Um, I certainly have been talking about Yemen for a long time. Uh, it is uh, horrifying uh, that uh, President Biden continues the arms sales uh, to Yemen over a billion dollars, something else which we thought would be reversed uh, with this administration. Uh, but there's a piece of legislation that the Progressive Caucus recently supported um, that goes beyond not selling the arms to Saudi Arabia, but also has to do with not supplying certain um, mechanisms that have to do with um, uh, the airplanes that enable uh, the genocide to occur. Also, there's a truce going on there, so we should be happy. But I, I, I think it is unfair. Uh, I know there's a lot of that. Like, why didn't you guys care about Yemen? Um, I just don't think that's that's fair. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that that I don't think anybody should feel shamed uh, for their horror at what is going on in, in Ukraine. And also, it's, it's, uh, they're seeing what's happening every day on the, on the media, too. I think maybe if they saw what was going on in Yemen every day in the corporate media, uh, people would care as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right, who else? I see that David has his hand up. David. Unmute. Thank you, Marianne. I'm in Eugene, Oregon. And my, my question has to do with that insanity that you talk about. It's on all sides. And Charles Eisenstein has said that the global elite seem to be powerless to do anything to change the status quo. And uh, reading things like systems theory makes me convinced that we have to start with grassroots, one person at a time. And what would you have to say about that? 
Well, I don't know why Charles Eisenstein would say that the global elite are powerless to change the status quo. The, the global elite perpetrate the status quo. What are we talking about there? The global elite means those who are in charge of such things as Northrop Grumman and, and Boeing and Raytheon. The global elite are behind all these wars. You know, not that anybody's sitting there like, let's kill somebody. It's not like that. It has to do with corporate prop, short-term corporate profit maximization. You know, whether it has to do with insurance companies that are the reason that Americans don't all have health care or pharmaceutical companies, which are the reason that um, the government cannot negotiate for lower drug prices, whether it has to do with big oil companies and the fact that um, continued fossil fuel extraction is destroying the planet, or whether it has to do with um, uh, those who, who are empowered uh, behind uh, the military industrial complex. It's not that somebody wakes up in the morning and says, who can I hurt today? It's not like that. That's not how the global elite operate. The global elite are not operating from a, from a mendacity of that sort. They simply justify to themselves that stockholder capitalism, in which the only fiduciary responsibility of the corporation is to serve its stockholders, even at the expense of other stakeholders, such as the workers, such as the community, such as the planet, or even such as the world, is not something they should have to worry about. It's not immoral, it's amoral. But amoral perspective always leads to immoral consequences. Mm -hmm. So when you say, you know, so I just want to say that it's not that the global elite is powerless to stop it. The global elite could stop it. You know, I'll give you an example, even here in domestic policy. If Jeff Bezos wanted to say, you know, you're right, unionize. What possible difference could it make in my life, given how many billions of dollars I have? If Howard Schultz said, you know what, Starbucks, unionize, what possible difference could it make? So, you know, the global elite are not powerless to stop this. The global elite are perpetrating this, and they need to hear from us. The only thing that can override and overpower that the the mendacity of the way the system operates now is with enough citizen involvement, both electoral and non-electoral. And that's why you're here tonight. You know, and, and lest we begin to despair and to lose hope, we should remember that there are millions of people all over the world who are in their own way having the same conversation that we're having. My only thing about the Peace Alliance is to stop being so freaking afraid of offending someone. The, 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 over the years, the organization has kept very soft and it's had a real problem with anybody really laying it down like it is. Laying it down like it is is what has to be done now. George Washington laid it down like it, like it is. Thomas Jefferson laid it down like it is. Abraham Lincoln laid it down like it is. Martin Luther King laid it down like it is. And I don't know how we're going to get anywhere if we continue to start, try to stay within the box of the conversation that is approved of by the establishment that is itself the problem. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. Another question from Facebook. What does Miriam think about the famine in Somalia and the lack of media attention about that? You know, it is true, you know, that the that the U.S. corporate uh, media is only towing the line of the um, of its corporate 
owners. I mean, that's that's the way it works. So I don't know why anybody should be so surprised that we don't get daily coverage of what is happening in Somalia any more than we got daily coverage of what is ha- what was happening in Syria or daily coverage of what was happening in Libya or daily coverage of what is happening in Yemen. On the other hand, there's plenty of independent media. So there's really no excuse these days for saying, well, I just don't know, nobody's showing me. Um, the information is out there uh, for the people who want it to be out there. Okay. Another question. Uh, can you ask Marianne about how we can effectively employ spiritual practices to help empower our grassroots advocacy efforts? Well, you know, when Matthew was talking about the five pillars uh, of the Department of Peace, uh, of the Peace Alliance, one of the things he talked about was cultivating peace within ourselves. Um, Mahatma Gandhi famously said, uh, as he articulated the principles of of nonviolence as a political philosophy, he said that the end is inherent in the means. And this means, of course, that everything we do is infused with the consciousness with which we do it. When I said before, it's interesting, when I said before about the Peace Alliance and being a little too reticent to have a more difficult conversation that really challenges the system, that is, be, 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 be clear what I mean by that. What I admire, acknowledge, and see as part of its founding vision is that hatred and cynicism um, and anger are like are recognized as the white sugar of political activism. They give you adrenaline, but then you crash. They don't change anything. So it has to be a recognition that we must speak from a place of peace within ourselves. But a place of peace within ourselves does not mean namby-pamby. It should not mean too soft. Um, uh, There's a line from Martin Luther King that I'm not remembering at the moment, but where he talks about this, that, that, that we, we must speak with love, but love sometimes says no. Love sometimes pushes back. Love sometimes sets boundaries. Love can be fierce. We're talking about like a mama bear protecting her children here. You mess with a mama bear, uh, she's coming after you. We're talking about the children of the earth here. We're talking about our, grand, our children, our grandchildren, and our great-grandchildren. Um, so the spirituality to me has to do with self-purification and recognizing that if we ourselves are not vessels of peace, then we will not be able to further the causes of peace. On the other hand, peace should not mean uh, soft and sentimental. Um, and sometimes love does say no. Yeah. Uh, any, any, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Julianne. Oh, hang on. There we go. I'm Marianne. Hi. I'm enjoying mornings. I'm so glad. Thank you. And um, I'm wondering, are there any plans in uh, to reorganize the way that we were back in the day to uh, get a sponsor of a bill and and literally do a campaign again or well, that we has to, that well, that has to do with the current leadership of the Peace Alliance and whatever whatever they decide. I would throw that one over to uh, Diane and to uh, Matthew and Kathy, and uh, they would know uh, what the plans of yes. the actual organization are for doing that. Yes, there are plans. So, um, yeah, in fact, in the call next week, we're going to two calls next week. I don't know if you know that Dennis is going to be on a call next week, Marianne. Dennis is? Uh-huh, Dennis. Excellent. Is. Yeah. Good. 
Well, so I, y'all should jump-starting. all, yeah. Y'all sh- yeah. And you all should definitely tell your friends. He's so brilliant. And as a yeah. matter of fact, I was talking to him just the other night and learning so much from him about Ukraine and the history. And he's such a national treasure. He is such a national treasure. And it's very sad to me that he is not currently in Congress because he should be. I agree. Great. So who the established- else? I'm sorry. Yeah, go ahead. Well, just the establishment, in this case, the Democratic establishment, uh, didn't want that voice. I know. You know, he wasn't spit out by Republicans. Yeah. Oh, really? No, it was the oh. redistricting on the part of the Democrats. He was, he was inconvenienced. You know, that is our job, everyone, to inconvenience the system. Yeah. Disrupt the power structure. Elegantly. Sweetly, but clearly, powerfully. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Who else? Yes, Anne. Uh, hello, everybody. Hi, Mary Ann. Hi. Uh, we've connected before. I, I've been really so interested right now in President Zelensky and how he's carrying forth uh, in a way that we haven't seen before. And I just wondered if you could talk about that a little, what you think I, of him. I feel the same way. He's, uh, the whole world is bowing before this man. And also it's such an example of how the establishment politicians claiming some mantle of qualification Um, when Biden offered him safe passage out of the country and he said, I don't need a ride, I need ammunition. I don't need ammunition, he said. He said, I need ammunition, I don't need a ride. Um, I think many uh, so-called qualified establishment politicians would have taken Joe Biden up on that offer. We've seen it time and time again. Mm -hmm. Um, A new order is coming forth. And uh, the establishment would laugh at such as Zelensky. Ah, he's just a poli- he's just a comedian. Yeah, well, his uh, quality of personhood is the quality of leadership that is necessary now. Um, I saw this when I was running for president. I thought it was so odd that the establishment, uh, political establishment, suggests that the only people, only people who have spent decades uh, learning how to drive the car. It drove us into this ditch should possibly be considered qualified to lead us out of the ditch. Um, we don't need car mechanics. We have enough political car mechanics. The problem is that the car is driving on the wrong road. So the fact that uh, Zelensky was not a traditional political car mechanic means nothing. The fact of his, uh, I, I, I don't even feel that words I could come up with can match um, really the splendor of the power of his, uh, of his leadership that each of us have, uh, have seen. Mm-hmm. I'm sickened by the fact that we don't seem to be able to do more to help. I understand, don't get me wrong. Yeah. I understand the, the, the conundrum. Uh, I yeah. do understand the conundrum. And I also um, assume that more is going on behind the scenes than any of us have any idea. Um, but still it's so sickening to watch that with all of these institutions like the United Nations and so forth, that this could happen and that we don't seem able to stop it is 
I have to just say one of the things I loved uh, when he spoke at the Security Council and he he in such a delicate way, he really, you know, he even said that, the you know, if the U.N. can't um, guarantee security, they should dissolve. So Well, that's because Russia is on the Security Council and China's on the Security Council in this case, too. So mm-hmm. the whole idea of the Security Council. You know, they should be off of. Putin should be offered the Security Council as well as the Human Rights Well, Council. it's interesting that there everybody's talking about his being tried before the, the International Criminal Court, International Criminal Court. Every American should be aware we're not members of the International Criminal Court because we're afraid that there's some Americans who might be tried in that court. Too. That's right. Yeah. So a lot of what we're saying right now sounds very hollow and very hypocritical, I'm afraid. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, another question. How do we galvanize the greater peace movement? Seems that our moment requires a groundswell. What would coalesce our various peace focuses to have a louder voice for peace? What greater peace movement? I don't see it. You know, I was at a, um, although I would love it if uh, the Peace Alliance uh, becomes the spark yeah. that could make it happen. You know, when I was growing up, many of us remember, there, and I think a large difference was there was a draft, right? So during, during, the, during the Vietnam War, that was a larger peace movement. Nothing like that even exists right now. Um, I was at, at a talk once and some young person said to me, oh, Miss Williamson, you're just an aging hippie. He said, you know, you, all you guys were about were sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And I said, that was just part of the day. I said, the rest of the day, we were uh, stopping a war. What have you done, young man? And I look forward. I see it beginning, but it is not what we could call a greater peace movement. So many of these young people who are involved in the plan to save the environment, and I'm so impressed by it and so excited by it, I would love to see a concomitant passion Uh, for fighting the U.S. war machine. See, part of the difference is many of us on this call remember a time when we did push back against the U.S. war machine. A lot of these young people don't even, they they were not even born at a time when, they they don't even remember a time when the United States was not so involved with with war making. They, there's not quite the same, well, they certainly don't have the institutional memory. I hope that that will begin to change because we need that useful energy. And I'm not saying that there aren't any uh, young people fighting the US war machine. And I'm not saying there aren't other people trying to fight the US war machine, but I don't think we could call it at this point, uh, a greater US peace movement. Mm -hmm. And I hope that the Peace Alliance will do more and more to help make it happen. Yeah, I would certainly uh, do whatever I could to be of, uh, uh, of use in that effort. Great. All right, another question. Uh, what does Marianne think might be the top three issues to help mobilize the public at the local levels? Well, I think, you know, one of the things that's very unique about, well, first of all, let me go back a little bit to when I was running for president on this issue, as in so many. People hear you. The problem is not that people don't like the idea. You have to go out and talk it. I mean, look what happened on the, uh, on the New York subway this morning. 
People are aware that we have a terrible problem with violence in the society. People are aware that we have a problem with violence in the world. People, too many people don't know about the Department of Peacebuilding campaign. You know, you just have to show up, show up on a Zoom call, show up at your church, show up at your synagogue, show up at your mosque, talk about it on Facebook, talk about it on Twitter, talk about it on Instagram, talk about it to your family, just start talking. And, and the Peace Alliance, I think, will give you the tools with which to do that. I hope that you uh, feel some of the conversation we have tonight uh, helps further your understanding. Because, you, you know, that is one of the principles of, of, of nonviolence is that you must educate yourself about the topic. True. I think that's even more true for women, you know. Um, uh, remember what Ann Richards said about Ginger Rogers? She did everything Fred Astaire did, but backwards in high heels. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, Robert Weir has a question, Kathy. Yes. Yeah, Robert. Hi. Uh, hello, Marianne. It's good to see you again. Good to Kathy see you, and everybody. Too. Thank you. So you've mentioned about getting more people involved with the with the peace voice, the voice of peace, like especially young people in a comment a few minutes ago. I'm wondering, are there other organizations like the Peace Alliance that are out there also speaking the voice of peace? And is there any uh, a movement to bring the Peace Alliance in, into conjunction with those other organizations if they do exist? I'm going to throw that over to Matthew. Well, yes, there definitely are. And other folks can chime in too. Friends Committee on National Legislation is one of my favorites. They do a broad array of issues, yes, of but course. they are really one of the leaders on kind of the policy in DC, I love them. And we've worked with them a lot in the past. We've, we've been on coalitions with them. The whole I, have a, stuff. I have a very good friend, uh, Hassan El-Tayab, who's head of Mideast Policy at Friends Committee. That's very, very true. Yeah. And they do a broad range of issues, but um, they're great. But um, there's, there's no issues. proactive, you know, they're, they're, they're very good on those things, as is human, yeah. you know, human Rights Watch, as is Amnesty International. But the thing that is so unique about the Peace Alliance is that it is set up from its conception to be specifically about the idea of waging peace. Right. That was what was so unique about the founding of this organization. And connecting, you know, domestic issues of violence, you know, that it's all the, what happens in war and what happens in our streets are really the same fundamental thing and we have to learn to prevent and smartly intervene <laughs> and it's just complex it's complex and so it's so hard to package it in a way this is what i've found and i think many of us have found it's just so hard to package that department of peace is a fun clever way to do it but it, it has its limits too and so it's just it's hard you know what though matthew when i ran for office um, we first of all, that's that's an answer right there. We need more people running for office mm -hmm. on a platform of establishing a Department of Peace, and I think it'd be a really good idea for you guys uh, to. Uh, it would be, of course, progressive candidates who are already talking about decreasing the U.S. military budget. But I, once again, you could look at, at candidatesummit.com, uh, look at those uh, candidates there, and talk to them about, um, in fact, um, Matthew, if you wanna come on the call, on a call with me, we, we meet on a mo monthly. Um, Lauren, I know we're having that other woman talk at the next one, but maybe at the one after that, you could set that up with Matthew. I think that would be great to put that out to progressive candidates uh, to suggest that they mention a Department of Peace. I love that idea. That's yeah. a great idea, Matthew. Yeah. 
Great. So we're going to go ahead and close the call. We're a minute away from uh, the bottom of the hour. Thank you so much, Marianne. This has been wonderful, uh, very inspiring. And um, yeah, it's been great to hear you again. So I want to tell everybody about everything we've got going on. We are rebuilding our network. So you'll hear hear more about that. Um, You can go to our calendar and see all of our programs. We have monthly empathy circles, the National Peace Builder Call, Department of Peace Building Call. We have a monthly consciousness raising book club. We have an upcoming book by Rivera Sun uh, that's a fundraiser for the Department of Peace Building campaign. We have our hope story circles. We have pause for peace at the end of April, which is using therapy animals in restorative justice. Uh, And then we have two new programs that continue to unfold. We have the Bring the Peace Movement and Building Peace Story by Story. Uh, The links are in the chat. And uh, please donate if you love and benefit from the programs we offer. We currently have a goal of raising $20,000 and enrolling 22 monthly donors. If you miss any of our calls, you can listen to them on our Peace on podcast page. Uh, You can look at the link in the chat to go there and share it on your Facebook page with your friends. Like us on Facebook. If you haven't already done that, just search for the Peace Alliance. And I'm going to close with a quote. Very I'd like to short. say something, if I might. Yes, please. I want to point out, I had already mentioned Andrew Coburn and his book, uh, Spoils of War. There's yeah. somebody else I'd like to mention that you can follow uh, online, Stephen Simler. Uh, because even with the things you mentioned, I think for those of you to be real advocates of peace, you can't be advocates of waging peace if you don't educate yourself on the way we now wage war. Um, I just want to say, if you join Marianne's Substack, like don't not join it. There's so much great stuff on there and all of these things will pop up for real. Great stuff. Thank you. Thank you. So um, I'm going to close with a quote. If you think you're too small to make a difference, try going to bed with a mosquito in the room. (laughs) I've heard that one. That was a great. I love that one. (laughs) Thank you, everybody. Thank you, everyone. It's an honor. Bye. 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 Thank you. Thanks, Marianne. Thank you for joining us today at Peace On. We hope that it inspires you to engage in dialogue in your larger community. Peace On is brought to you by the Peace Alliance, found at peacealliance.org.